What's up, guys? Welcome to the Establish the Edge podcast. I'm your host, Pat Corain, and with me is my co-host, Mike Leone of EstablishTheRun.com. Mike, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Pat. Uh, I'm excited for our topic today. Also, if you're listening to this and you're into NBA, I've been grinding some NBA stuff, not nearly as much as Mike Gallagher and Drew Dinkmeyer have at Establish the Run, but we have seasonal NBA and DFS NBA upcoming, so I'm pretty excited about that. Yes, it's pretty exciting. I'm uh I'm thinking I'm gonna be doing a little bit more NBA. I got kind of got into it over the bubble, so <laughs> I'm yeah. excited too. It's mostly just a pure NFL guy, but I think that's starting to change a little bit. I'm hoping the underdog NBA best ball stuff takes off and and maybe you know this year is small, next year it gets a little bit bigger because that's uh, season long NBA is fun, but you know, it's it's hard to manage over the course of a season. So converting that to best ball, I think would be a pretty big win for getting season long NBA a little bit more hype than it's gotten previously. Yeah. I don't think I'm ready for like managed NBA leagues, but best ball sounds doable. <laughs> yeah. Um, on this week's episode, we're going to be doing another one of the deep dive type of episodes that we've done in the past. Um, this one is going to be on diversification. So we're going to be talking through diversification within three different formats, fantasy football, DFS redraft and dynasty. We're going to go in that order. Um, and honestly, this is a topic where both Mike and I feel like we're still trying to figure it out. We're trying, so, so it's going to be much more of a conversation of us talking through what we're thinking on, on how to diversify what's right, because it can be kind of tough, you know, and it can be, I think it's one of those things where, where hindsight bias really plays in where you, you think like, man, I should have put all my eggs in the DK Metcalf basket this year, because that was clearly right. It's like, well, he wasn't necessarily that much better a bet than some of the other, other guys going around. He just happened to hit. And now you feel like a fool for not going in harder. Or, you know, you did go in hard on a particular rookie wide receiver, and then you don't have that much Justin Jefferson, and now you're killing yourself for not diversifying. So, you know, that's the type of stuff we want to talk through. I guess, Mike, let's start with DFS, where uh, your expertise is really going to come into play here. Um, where where do you start in terms of like thinking through diversification in regards to your DFS lineups? Yeah, it's difficult, and I want to get your thoughts on this too. But I guess as far as where I start, well, they zoom out kind of like the reason I wanted to do this this topic for this podcast was twofold. One, in terms of non-DFS, I heard you on a podcast talking Justin Jefferson and Jalen Rager and how you, know, you took a lot of Rager ahead of Jefferson. Not that you had a huge difference, but you preferred Rager, so you just always took Rager ahead of Jefferson in redraft at least. And bringing that to DFS, like there's very comparable decisions in DFS too, where uh, you know this past week there were like five running backs I liked, but I just thought Austin Eckler was this great tournament play and I kept slotting him in. And as a result, I didn't get exposure to some other running backs. And I'm someone who hand builds like five-ish teams a week, you know, give or take two on the given week. And it can be really hard to manage exposures. There's guys that I want to play that I can't because I just don't have that many teams, that many spots. So a lot of times after I make my six teams or whatever, I'll say, oh, yeah, I've got 80% this running back who I just really liked and kept fitting, but this other running back I thought was a good GPP pivot I have none of. Like, Do I go back and switch some of those teams to that GPP pivot? Or do I go all in on that sort of running back? And 
I don't really have a good answer for it. And that's why I do this podcast. And one of the things I found myself doing that I think is a mistake, and I'll get into why in a little bit, but I want to throw it back to you after I make this point is, so stacking, obviously a huge part of DFS. And I found myself in this mode, making five-ish teams a week. It's like, okay, what are the five stacks I like? And I play these five stacks. Should I don't think that's right, you know, because I think there's pro- and the idea there is like I'll have a good team if one of those five stacks goes off. And I think there's some positives to doing it that way, where if you're constructing smart teams, you want like five different bets because you're making a smart team in terms of total ownership and correlation across five different teams, and that's smart. But I think it's not smart in a way that, you know, maybe one to two stacks are, are just really the best leverage and the highest EV of the week. And you should be making like multiple iterations of those one to two stacks rather than just saying each week, let me, you know, I've got five teams. I'm going to do five different stacks. How tight is the core that you're using with the five different stacks? It really varies a lot by week. Usually running back ends up tighter for me and wide receiver ends up more dispersed. And part of that's because wide receivers tied to the quarterback a little bit more and in the stacking. So you're almost forced to diversify a little bit more if you're doing multiple stacks. Um, but I also just find that being a little bit more unpredictable that, and you can get some receivers at like incredibly low ownership that are reasonable plays that you might not want a ton of exposure to. Whereas running back is a little bit more predictable due to the, you know, we just kind of know what touches guys are going to get both in terms of quantity and quality of touches that we can kind of deduce the better plays better. So I'm, I'm usually tighter there. Sometimes I'll have a running back on uh, this past week, for example, Naheem Hines, I thought was just an amazing value. Him and Brian Hill were two kind of good values. And I just made the decision that I wanted to go in on the Naheem Hines chalk and fade the Brian Hill chalk. So I was like 90% Naheem Hines and 10% Brian Hill. So I am willing to go pretty heavy um, in certain spots. Yeah. And you were talking right before the show about the idea of like, of doing well, of playing DFS, like kind of week by week versus playing it over your lifetime. And if you have identified like particular stack in a given week that you think is just the best stack of the week by far or whatever, or there's a couple, but not five, then really going heavy on those one or two stacks would actually be better for like your overall lifetime is assuming you can correctly identify those stacks, then you're going to be better off. Whereas if you're looking week to week, that diversification, you know, spreading those stacks out is probably going to, you know, give you potentially better result that week. Yeah. I think it's funny, you know, going into a DFS season, if you're a GPP player, you kind of know that there's going to be eight to 10 weeks that you just don't kind of have a chance by the way the week unfolds. There might be, you know, four weeks that set up really well for you. And, you know, hopefully you come out on top of those four weeks. And then maybe there's several weeks that are just like in between those two things. But when we're in each week, we don't really have the mindset of it. I try to generate this mindset, but it can be tough to like keep that in the back of your mind. You still end up like hedging your bets a little bit where, um, one decision I made that was good, that was like tough. And I say good because it worked out results wise. But last week, for example, I thought the Buffalo chargers game was going to be overowned. Um, just 
ownership relative to the Vegas total, but it was like also one of the highest upside stacks. So if you're making five teams, it was hard not to make that a stack. So eventually I cut it out. And what I tried to generate in my mind is thinking, you know, are we looking at each week in isolation? You know, in in which case I think sometimes we diversify a little bit more where we're like, well, if this happens, I don't want to get wiped out. Uh, and I kind of like this, so this might happen. So just in case this happens, I'll play it this way, you know, versus if we viewed it as one week over the course of our lifetime playing DFS, we might say, well, let's get our money in where it's best. And if we lose this week, who cares? This is one of a hundred weeks we're going to play over the next five years or in a five-year span. And like, it's a different mindset if you're thinking of it as a week by itself versus a week in the season versus even a week over, you know, your lifetime playing DFS. Yeah. And I was, I was chatting with you before lock on Sunday and I was, I was not willing to fade the bills game. Cause I have just been playing a lot of Herbert. I really like Herbert. And uh, that was kind of a fun game to stack. Cause there was lots of good pieces. There's like, you felt like you could identify where the targets are going, et cetera. Eckler was back. So, you know, you could throw him in and you felt like, you know, I, I was like, well, if I play Eckler with Herbert, then maybe I'm a little bit more unique off of these other stacks. So you, there's just a million ways to talk yourself into that game. And of course, you're a big Bills fan. You're literally wearing a Bills hoodie right now. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm, I'm pretty impressed that you were able to cut that game out. And that was obviously the right call. And there was, you know, if you could get even one more Mahomes stack in there and, and not have a, a Bills charger stack, it was massively plus well, EV. Buddy, let me tell you, I did not have the Mahomes Tyreek Hill stack, so it still didn't. <laughs> hey, I swapped off a Mahomes Tyreek Hill stat, stack to oh. a Mahomes Kelsey stack because I thought, well, Gerald Everett, you know, maybe not as good a play as I thought it won. I've got new information now. I should, I should play <laughs> oh, Kelsey, and then I was literally throwing things as Tyreek Hill went, you know, just absolutely bonkers. So, but yeah, yeah so <laughs> but last week's a good example of how like I ended up you know, it, it turned out well on the bill side of things, but it turned out poorly that I ended up playing that week. Uh, essentially what I decided for that week, and I'm trying to like generalize this a little bit more. So it's not overly specific was that Naheem Hines was a great play and I wanted to correlate that game. And also I thought there were a lot of really good leverage plays in this week. Austin Eckler, who I mentioned and as a result, I was running out of spots in my roster if I did a really big stack that didn't you know, necessarily have the chalky guys I really wanted to play. So as a result, I ended up doing a lot of cheaper quarterback stacks that were skinnies that, you know, with just one receiver that didn't take up a lot of roster spots so that I could do these mini correlations and these one-offs. I could play a ton of Eckler and not even necessarily have to correlate them. I could play you know, Derek Henry coming back on Naheem Hines. And the other one I ended up liking a lot more was I played a lot of Tannehill with AJ Brown and Naheem Hines because, you know, your quarterback spot and your and chalk running back spot, essentially I was only taking up one spot on AJ Brown, like outside of the guys I would normally play. So it gave me more flexibility. So again, that's specific, but generalized, I thought I found the strategy that made the most sense for the week. And I did end up playing that strategy pretty heavily within that strategy. I tried to diversify a little bit where I didn't do all Tannehill stacks. I did like a Fitzpatrick, Devonte Parker, Mim stack, which, you know, again, was like kind of 
fit this exact same concept, but I diversified within that. And I think we're going to see as we talk about redraft and dynasty that the common thread that's like difficult for diversification is like when you think you've, you know, there's a spot you can get your money in good. You really want to do that. But then you're kind of within this generalized strategy that you think is plus EV. Then you kind of want to diversify a little bit where you don't want to be dead on with the correct strategy and then not get paid off because you were too condensed and too concentrated in what you did. I think back to a few, you know, it didn't work out for me last week, but one of the weeks that worked out was the week where we had a lot of chalk at running back early. And we had a lot of those late afternoon games with good stacks. It was the bills, Arizona week. And the epiphany I had that week was, which I, I, you know, I had this epiphany last week that did not work out, but the one I had that week was I need to go contrarian at running back early because of the late swap structure I'm going to play a lot of DeAndre Swift and a bring back in this Washington game. And I liked McLaurin as the bring back pretty heavily. But, you know, talking to Dink uh, on our show and whatnot, he flag planted Antonio Gibson. So I did a couple of teams with Gibson as the bring back instead of instead of doing like 100% McLaurin as the bring back on Swift. And that was a huge differentiator for me where if I had done all McLaurin, I would have wasted this really good strategy and this really good leverage I had on the field by being overly concentrated on something that was super specific when I could have kept the exact same strategy and made like a really small pivot to playing some Antonio Gibson teams, which you know, those teams allowed me to actually like compete and win some tournaments, whereas the McLaurin teams were just like, okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, the Then we're going to get more into that, as you mentioned, in the other formats because i think that's one of the most interesting things here is is you have the right macro idea then you could potentially ruin it by getting too player specific or getting too locked in on the micro stuff and yeah so getting that gibson bring back instead of mclaurin being a key example of that one of the other things i just wanted to point out is the eckler play you know you um when we were chatting prior to lock on sunday you mentioned Eckler as just kind of being your way of like getting a piece of that game and then getting out. And I like, I think that's pretty interesting from a diversification perspective where instead of like hedging your bets by playing one Allen stack or one Herbert stack, you could have identified a key piece in that game uh, in Eckler that's going to be under-owned, a little bit of, um, you know, kind of leverage off of Herbert to some extent, although if Herbert ends up throwing a lot, he can still get there on targets. He just had a massive target total. So he kind of beat, he ended up like being somewhat of a hedge in that you weren't completely fading that game, but but also providing leverage off of Herbert and Allen. So that was an interesting piece where it's like, you're kind of getting some diversification, but you're also doubling down on your bet against the game in some ways you're a little bit of best yeah, you of had, world situation you had kind of like outs you know the game goes off you know Eckler's probably going to go off but like he's still pretty viable like as like he scores touchdowns and Keenan Allen doesn't type thing so it works a little bit both ways the other thing that was interesting last week there were a couple guys coming back from injury and we've seen people afraid to play guys back from injury Austin Eckler was one of them Debo Samuel was another uh a guy that I used and you know, talk about getting your money in when it's good. Like there's sometimes there's opportunities. It might not always be a guy returning from injury where you're just like, 
you know, this, this opportunity is not going to come along that often. And I really want to take advantage of it. And I think it's okay to be really heavily concentrated. And that's when you, I think if you have that mindset of thinking of a week as a series of weeks and a series of seasons, instead of a week by itself and not being afraid of just breaking a week where you can kind of go all in. If you see a spot where, where you just think it's so plus EV and it might not come around again, you know, don't force yourself to hedge off it and just kind of accept that you'll, you'll lose if it doesn't hit. But like, again, same thing within that, if I'm going to go all in on Eckler, like heavy Eckler, heavy Debo Samuel, I want to diversify around it. You know, I ended up doing just like one Debo Samuel team. It had a Cooper cup coming back, which was like a smart correlation play, but cup tanked and that team tanked because cup tanked. Whereas if, so if you were really heavy Debo, you wouldn't have wanted to go like all in on cup, assuming yeah. that, assuming that the reason you were making those teams was because of Debo himself. Yeah. Like if you have a bunch of conviction, I mean, even if I had, even if I had uh, kept my Tyree kill, lineup last week that I swapped off of it had Antonio Brown coming back so but if it's like if you have the conviction that Tyreek Hill is going to have this big game would really have sucked if you also just took the cheap bring back in Antonio Brown in every one of those lineups so it's like if you've got the conviction on the who do you have the conviction on if it's not on the Cooper Cup piece if it's not on the bring back if it's not on Terry McLaurin instead it's on DeAndre Swift diversify off of the bring back and you know, you can still do the conviction play with diversified options around it. Yeah. And it's going to be something that always the results are going to mess with you one way or the other, because (laughs) when you're right on something, you're going to be like, why didn't I play this in every lineup? And when you're wrong, you're like, Oh, I could have so easily have thrown in a a Derrick Henry team over Delvin cook last week. Like, why didn't I do that? So um, there's, there's certainly some give and take. Let me ask you like how, like, Kind of, how do you know when you're when you found one of those spots that you're like, this is the spot to? I have found the spot to go pretty heavy on to build my whole week around. And like, do you struggle with that? Like, kind of feeling like you always find that spot? I feel like it's something that doesn't happen every week for sure. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to force it every week. Um, and I do, th- you know, if we wanted to branch this off into contest selection and bankroll management, I do think there's probably something to not playing the exact same contests and exact same money every week. And kind of like when you really have a good idea of a really plus leverage spot, maybe play a little bit more or, or play what contests you're playing a little bit differently. It's harder in NFL though, because it could change so much between when you register for games and when Sunday finally comes around, but it's something I'm going to be thinking through for NBA quite a bit this year. But as far as identifying that spot, it it isn't something that's every week. And I just kind of think we had a McCaffrey week too, where he came back from injury. And I just was thinking to myself, we're never going to get Christian McCaffrey at this price in this ownership combination ever again you know, and, and obviously there's this injury risk associated with it, but that's the whole reason why you're getting him at that price in that, that ownership combination. And I got scared off McCaffrey that week, the reports that yeah, the reports you know, I did too. You know. So me and Peter Overset this week on Saturday night, we talked about Eckler and we were both on Eckler and we, we said we were just going to mute the Eckler reports on Twitter. And Peter sent me some messages Sunday morning when Rappaport said Eckler wasn't going to get a workhorse role. He just said, stay strong. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, rap, rap sheet, you just do whatever the opposite of what he said. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like 
plus EV. But I guess like to try and generalize it a little bit more, you just kind of want to find a spot where you're like, what's the spot where we're going to say after the slate, like, oh my God, how did we not play that more? Or like, how is that not more owned? And sometimes what happens throughout a week is like, I'll have a good leverage idea and the whole market sees it. And by yeah. Sunday morning, it's owned. I remember Sometime, there was like Patrick Mahomes sneaky stack week. And it's just like, <laughs> then by the end of the, this will make maybe early in the season, everyone was on it by, by Sunday. Right. So that happens a lot. So I guess like when that doesn't happen is kind of when you're like, okay, this might be a really good spot. Like the market's not on and you have to be willing to kind of be like out there by yourself a little bit, but that's kind of the whole point. Like, so. Right. You, you're playing for first place. So you literally need to be out there by yourself. Yeah. Um, so if, if you have not really, if, if you go into a week, you know, it's, it's Sunday morning and you just feel like you haven't found that spot. Are you going to play then that week a little bit differently or a little bit more spread out on kind of all your lineups looking a little bit more different from each other? Yeah. I, I'm glad you asked that and the way you phrase that. Cause I think that's maybe that's what it comes down to is like, if you have that spot on a week, don't be afraid to be very heavy. You know, whether it's a stack a one-off, whatever, don't be afraid to go very heavy that week, but like you don't have to play each week the same. So like you could lock a player or two players one week. Um, and then another week, maybe you don't have any player in more than 30% of your lineups. You know, if you just don't see that spot, maybe that week you're just doing, okay, these stacks are kind of even, they're all like, okay, leverage, Let's just make smart lineups, be cognizant of the total ownership of each lineup, make sure to correlate and kind of the chips fall where they may. Um, so I think it's okay to not do the same thing every week in terms of your diversification. You're diversifying your weekly strategies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any any other uh, DFS points we should cover? Uh, I know people ask about MME. I'm talking more like a hand build standpoint but i think like the same thing probably applies to mme i know i had a week i've only mme'd a couple of times this year but i had one where no one was going to play the eagles rams game early in the season i think it was the week that higby scored three touchdowns and i i just entered 150 rams eagles stacks into the FanDuel millie like i was like no one's going to be on this in mme it's going to be one percent you know and, and i saw routes to just a lot of passing attempts and it didn't end up paying off but you know, I think the same thing applies to MME. I think you can be very aggressive. And then I think you can have other weeks where you literally don't have a guy in your MME pool, even if you're playing hundreds of teams, that's over 30% owned. That's interesting. So you like literally or normally are not playing MME. And then you identified a week where it's like, this sets up really well for this particular MME play. And then you MME, MME that. Yeah. Yeah, where I was like, kind of like, I don't know who to stack in single entry three max, but I know this game's gonna go under owned. <laughs> so just let me set up a couple stacking rules and just run a hundred fifty set of, you know, this super low owned game. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, because I'm I'm just doing the hand building stuff too, um, but that that's a really interesting thought. All right, let's move to redraft. Um, starting with the kind of the the point that we already covered a little bit with DFS, like the macro trend. And then operating within that macro trend by player selection. So the macro trend that I think we should talk about in redraft, uh, at least first, is zero running back, which, you know, this is a, a strategy that you and I both like a lot and have used extensively in, in high stakes. 
And this was a year where we thought it was going to be like the perfect setup for it with the amount of uncertainty that this, you know, COVID season was going to bring with running back staying historically healthy the previous season with really historically high running back ADPs in 2019. And then the running backs paying off those led to a situation where the market felt very, very confident in selecting running backs in rounds three through four. And even, you know, like mid to late two through five, that range has been a really, really difficult range to get running back picks right over, you know, a wider range. So we, we knew that this, you know, running back dead zone, as Ben Gretsch calls it, is uh, was kind of setting up for massive pain, um, and we avoided that. So that was that was great. But you know, as I look back on my teams, I'm like, man, I had a lot of Cortland Sutton. <laughs> you know, didn't didn't necessarily need to take that much Cortland Sutton when I got the macro trend correct. It, the macro trend was so strong that you know it, we still had a very strong year and everything, but. I think that's one potential leak is if you've got the trend, you've made a huge bet on the trend, you can still kind of take a lot of money off the table for yourself um, or out of your own pocket. I mean, by getting too caught up on specific players. Now, certainly if like you had made all of your bets on DK Metcalf within the right trend, then you'd be like, I'm a genius. And yeah. you would have, this would have been the best year of your life. <laughs> but, you know, that that's kind of goes to the point you're making about like how the results can kind of mess with you a little bit. I, I kind of feel like the right thing to say here is that if you have such strong conviction on the trend that you do want to diversify a little bit on the specific wide receivers that, you know, you would have selected in rounds like three through five. Yeah, I think it, it, a lot of it comes down to, you know, if I were to ask you, where is your edge? Is your edge in this macro roster construction or is it in Cortland Sutton, right? You probably would say the macro roster construction, yeah. right? So, you know, tying into kind of like how I was saying for DFS, you maximize where your edge is and then, you know, probably diversify around that so that, if you're right on where you think the edge is highest, you get paid off sort of thing. And you still want to have more of the guys that you like better. I know you had a lot of Ronald Jones within this zero running back strategy, and that's paid off you know, really handsomely for you. So it's hard to say not to like be heavy on any one player, but just kind of like in the background of your mind, just being cognizant of where your edge is most. Which, and, and I, I think, think that's... Down to- opportunity costs sorry to jump in but like Cortland Sutton was going in a range where there was also several other wide receivers that I was really high on in that range and so to have I just went too high on him because he tended to slip the most but I think one thing I could have done is if I ever had a chance to get like Shark or you know and Shark wasn't necessarily he was probably the worst pick of Sutton if Sutton had stayed healthy but you know if you have a chance to get Metcalf here take it because you know you're going to be able to get Sutton later on and you want to diversify among these guys who you all like. Ronald Jones was one of the guys later on where it's like, I like Ronald Jones two and a half rounds more than anyone else available right now. So I'm going to take Ronald Jones. And so that's a situation where if you, what are you passing on? If you're Mm -hmm. passing on guys that you don't even like that much, then I don't necessarily think you have to diversify. 
but um, or that it, diversification diversification is going to be less important anyway. But if you're passing on guys who you're also really excited about, then that can be a bad move. Like I, I ended up with a lot more AJ Brown than Calvin Ridley, and ultimately, I don't think that'll really matter. But I feel kind of dumb about it because you're like, I liked Calvin Ridley too. I should have had pretty close, like maybe, you know, 60, 40 at most. And, uh, you know, that could have potentially really burned me where I don't have enough exposure to a guy that I really liked. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all really good points. I think where I struggle and what people struggle is when you're actually on the clock and it's, you know, you, you have AJ Brown ranked ahead of Calvin Ridley. They're both there. You're probably only going to get one. At what point do you diversify? You know, your fourth draft, your eighth draft. <laughs> and I don't really have an answer for that, but I think that's where, you know, like let's say you've got something that's like a 55 45 in your favor. You know, part of you probably wants to say just play the 55% every time, you know, maximize your EV. But then part of it is again thinking of, oh, well, we've got this really good broad strategy do I want to not get paid off on this broad strategy? Cause the 55 45 goes the wrong way for me. Um, but yeah, do you think about how you like how you're able to actually diversify like within a draft and you're on, on the clock and you know, it's AJ Brown versus Calvin really like, how would you ever go the other way? Yeah, there's, there's spots where like we had um, our main event, draft me and Pete Overzet's the first draft that we did we we took DJ Moore and Mark Andrews or Mark Andrews first and then got DJ Moore on the turn uh and that was out of the five hole I believe and then the next main event that we did and we we'd done a bunch of other like football guys drafts and stuff in between that but the next main event draft that we did we were out of the one spot and we uh we set ourselves up for Mark Andrews and DJ Moore again with a different running back, Christian McCaffrey, instead of Alvin Kamara, we ended up going with Aaron Jones, who typically does not fall to that range uh, to the two twelve three hundred one, and still took Andrews because we felt like that tight end construction was something that we really liked. And if we passed on him, it would have changed kind of the macro strategy, but we were going to load up on wide receivers anyway so Mm -hmm. getting another dj Moore share was probably less critical and we ended up going with a pretty rare running back running back start for us but you know aaron jones just typically like that's going to be kind of a unique start in the main event that team ended up missing the playoffs because of mccaffrey's injury but ultimately i think that was probably a good diversification move because one it kind of hedges a little bit against the the big macro strategy we were doing of almost never taking running back, running back, taking at most one running back the first two rounds. And then it also uh, got us off, you know, just what was setting up to be a big, big uh, push into DJ Moore uh, as as a big part of our portfolio. Yeah, I think there's a few ways you can diversify. One you hit on is kind of change the structure a little bit of how you're drafting which is what you did with the running back running back start, just kind of like identifying a value you didn't expect and changing the structure. Another way of doing it is I've I've written about stacking a lot and how it's important in season long. It's important. You're kind of, cause you want to correlate the upside of your teams together, but in a way it 
can force you to diversify a little bit where if you, um, I mean, just because you want to complete the stack, you might end up taking a receiver that, you know, normally you wouldn't have, right? Like just to complete the stack or a quarterback you want to have later on to complete the stack. And um, it, it helps you break some ties that maybe you're consistently breaking the other way when the stack isn't a consideration. And when the stack's a consideration, you realize, well, this is pretty close anyways. I'm going to take the correlation and the stack side of things. Another way to do it too is, you know, based on 80, you'll play the ADP game in a few, few spots where maybe you're between two guys, you know, one of them is going to come back. You can kind of like play the ADP game where normally maybe you'd take, I don't know, you'd take Ridley in three over AJ Brown or whatever, you know, maybe there's a different option there and you can play the ADP game and just draft, you know, whichever the two comes back. Yeah. We, we did a draft with this high stakes player um, goes by crack rock and he like when we drafted with him, it was just like this guy shouldn't be here, so we're gonna take him. And it's like you're kind of taking values and letting those values dictate a little bit, not necessarily dictate your whole structure. It was that like we ended up taking um, Keenan Allen, who had fallen pretty far, and so we, you know, ended up on guys that Pete and I normally wouldn't be drafting. Um, we didn't have a lot of Keenan Allen. We got Odo Beckham, which obviously didn't pan out, but you know didn't have really any exposure to him otherwise um, in the high stakes portfolio. And so I think allowing the ADP to dictate it to some extent can help you get a little bit more diversified. Uh, I also think that you know the stacking point is is excellent. Like that helped me and my best ball teams get more Higgins, get more Claypool because they were helping me complete stacks. And they were wide receivers that I did think have some pretty decent upside, um, but were not guys that I felt that strong about to where I was drafting them in the high stakes team. So I think the stacking is a big, big help. And it also is a help in your high stakes, not just best ball. Um, I ended up with more Josh Allen than I think I would have had because uh, I liked Stefan Diggs where he was going. So it's like, hey, let's complete the stack. And obviously that was uh, a nice uh, addition to be able to get Allen there. The other thing I'll say is that co-owners help. Like I mentioned, you know, Crack Rock was getting us on Keenan Allen and there were guys that like we just would not have been taking. And there's also like the way he builds, like he, he wants to, he calls cranking it purple where he just like <laughs> gets Crank like purple. a bunch of tight ends in a certain, you know, and part of the uh, kind of, a, it's actually a really interesting strategy where he's like taking, we ended up taking like four tight ends rounds, like seven through 10 or something. And, you know, I would never ever have done that on my own or Pete wouldn't have done that uh, just at one, one of our teams. So, getting that co-owner in there and, and drafting with someone you don't always draft with, I think can shake things up for you in ways that are helpful and also get, you know, you, you end up kind of making different tiebreaker calls on those specific player selections that ultimately can help diversify your portfolio in a way that's, you know, still it's a good process. Yeah. It's a really good reminder too, of how we can easily end up overconfident on guys. You know, when you have a co-owner, and they have a 50-50 call the other way. And you're kind of like, yeah, I guess I guess that is kind of a good coin flip. Let's go the other way. Whereas in your own mind, it's probably like, I have to take 
Jalen Rager over Justin Jefferson, which I bring that one up because you mentioned it, but like I did that in all my drafts. I have like so much Rager and I have zero Jefferson in redraft. And it's, uh, it, it hurts Pat. It hurts a little bit. I it think- does hurt. Yeah. And, and that I wanted to talk about, and this can kind of help transition us to dynasty, Yeah, but um, you know, I actually have quite a bit of Justin Jefferson in dynasty. I do not have Justin Jefferson on my high stakes teams. And so I'm like, what happened? <laughs> like, what happened here? And I think part of it is that 55-45 thing you were talking about, where I just felt like I could get, you know, the part of the reason I have Justin Jefferson in Dynasty is because he was typically falling to like, I mean, even in uh, non-Superflex leagues, he would fall to the late first. You could sometimes get him like around like the 112201. And then in Superflex, you're pretty much guaranteed to be able to get him in that range. And Rager was a bit more expensive, but I really liked this class. So I was making a point to get a lot of picks, you know, in the late first, early second range. And that allowed me to get exposure to Jefferson, who I did like as a press is a prospect. I thought he was a, a pretty darn good prospect, similar really to Rager as a prospect. But I got too hyped on the situation, you know, thinking that like, well, man, look at all these available targets. Rager's going to be able to step in here immediately. And when you look at the guys who broke out this year in really big ways, it actually was not the ones necessarily who you would have thought like these situations set up for them to just excel right away. Like Chase Claypool comes in in a pretty crowded uh, wide receiver room where you think like, man, he's not going to be able to contribute right away. He immediately smashes. T. Higgins, you know, there's like just a ton of bodies. We don't know who's getting targets in training camp. And he comes in and has an immediate impact. So I think identifying like, look at all these available targets. There's going to be decent quarterback play. I mean, those one, there was not decent quarterback play in Philly. And two, if the guy is good, the the available targets is probably a little bit of an overblown type of analysis, I think. So I feel like I ended up just taking the guy that I had a, a lean towards in the dynasty rookie draft season and making a gigantic bet on him in high stakes where if I just stepped back and said, like, you know, these guys are pretty close for you. You should have exposure to both. Uh, that would have been a big uh, – that would have just really helped because obviously one I, of them smashed and one of them didn't, didn't do anything. Yeah, such a gargantuan difference. And that's what's difficult in Dynasty is, I mean, some of these decisions, they, they stick with you for a long time. Uh, if you get one of these 50-50 calls in a rookie draft the wrong way. Yeah, and I mentioned redraft, you can kind of play the ADP game. In rookie drafts, I'm not in as many as you, I don't believe. But one thing you can do too, if you can read the room a little bit, maybe you can slide down in the draft at a spot where you'd normally just keep hammering a certain player and get some more expected value and diversify kind of like at the same time, if you think it's somewhat close and, and you know, you can like, you have that ability to the trade flexibility kind of adds another route to getting your diversification, just kind of like where you are in the rookie draft, but it's still a difficult spot. I know for me, the two guys I ended up routinely taking was CD lamb and JK Dobbins. And, and one of them's like, I'm glad I took a ton of CD lamb. He's going to be a stud. I, you know, I nailed that one. And then there's the Dobbins one where it's like, I kind of wish I worked some more DeAndre Swift in there a, a little bit. So uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to 
kind of know where to draw the line between, you know, taking the guy who you think is the better player and like also acknowledging the uncertainty of, uh, of, I mean, of just evaluating these prospects. Yeah. I would say one thing that I am happy with when I look back at my, my rookie drafts is that if a guy fell really far and it wasn't someone that I was super hyped on, but that I did think had an interesting profile, I would go ahead and and just take them. So mm-hmm. Jerry Judy is someone who, not that I was like fading Judy, but I just thought compared to the other wide receivers in the in the class, he wasn't like a total smash. And he kind of belonged more with Rager and Jefferson and those guys than, you know, in this like clear tier above them. So I don't really have any Judy except when he fell uh, in one Superflex draft, he fell pretty far. I mean, I don't know, like 108 or 109 or something further than I thought he would. And I just took him. I, I did trade in and also take Jalen Rager because I'm sick. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I took Judy first, and I would have taken Judy if I had only given the chance uh, to get one of them. So uh, that also happened in another uh, – this Pros versus Joe's Dynasty Superflex that I did where – Henry Ruggs fell like extremely far and Ruggs was someone that I didn't have any exposure to, but I didn't hate, you know, I think he's this highly athletic, pretty big, the first wide receiver drafted in this awesome class. Like I was like, if I pass on Ruggs here, like that's just dumb. Like Ruggs could have a huge monster ceiling and you're getting him at a huge discount. You can't even complain that he's too expensive. He wasn't expensive here. And so I think, forcing yourself to take guys that you don't necessarily love, but you're getting a big discount on, I think is really good. I also, Denzel Mims was one of the biggest fades for me in this draft class, just because I thought, you know, he's going next to Brandon Ayuk, who I really liked. He's going next to LaVisca Chenault, who I really liked. Um, Sometimes, you know, he's even in the mix with like Jefferson and stuff. But uh, Mims is someone that I do have exposure to in in the last rookie draft that I did. Um, because he fell really, really far. And I just said, Mims shouldn't be here. And so I took Mims. And then I also was able to trade for Mims very cheaply in the draft that we're in together, the the auction draft that we did. Because I was just like, he's the only like rookie wide receiver who I can get right now. And he and he could be stepping into a lot of targets. So I kind of I think that's one thing I've tried to work on in Dynasty is forcing myself to get exposure to some of these guys who I didn't love their um, I didn't love them at their price compared to the other guys, but then when the price falls, not getting locked into that opinion and allowing yourself to take them. That makes a ton of sense. I'm if anything, sometimes I think where I like am flawed sometimes in redraft and dynasty is I'm almost too cognizant of price. Like I really, you know, I'll take some guys that other sharps might not take at all, (laughs) you know, just because, I feel like there's there's a price for everyone, so to speak. And and I know other people strategically think that's pretty much not true. There's not a price for everyone, but that is a good way to diversify. I did the same thing with rugs. Uh, the other point is we're talking, you know, we in DFS and redraft talk about like where's your edge? Like where's your edge case? And I think what can be really hard too is differentiating between there's an edge here, which for me, I felt like CD lamb and rookie drafts was an edge case, just given the work that you did where, you know, your dynasty rankings had him where I saw like Sean Siegel had CD lamb as like already like a top 20 dynasty player overall. And I just felt like 
this, you know, this is an edge case where CD Lamb, because of the construction in these super flex rookie drafts with Burrow, with Tua, with these running backs everyone likes, like you're getting a guy that in a lot of years is a 101, you're getting him at like 105, 106. Um, so I thought that was an edge case. So I feel good about that, but it's also hard to, one, it's easier to say that was an edge case for you if you were right after the fact versus like, oh, I can So you, you kind of have to be really honest with yourself when you're evaluating after the fact. And two, you have to be try and differentiate, you know, what's an edge case versus what's, I just like this play a little, little bit more than this other player, you know, which is kind of, which is different. Like that's not an edge case really. That's just like, I like, you know, T Higgins a little bit better than Denzel Mims or whatever it is. Like, yep. And T Higgins is a guy who I, I don't have a ton of exposure to in dynasty, but he did fall to me in one draft and I, and I grabbed him and it's like, thank God that, you know, I did. And I think part of it is that having played dynasty for a while, you can look back on what you did the last time there was a class like this. And the last time there was, there was a class like this was 2014. This is the the best wide receiver class since 2014 looked like it was going to be. And I think it, it is. And I got way too locked in on certain guys in 2014. Luckily, you were shooting fish in a barrel in 2014. So, like, the guys I got locked in on, some of the bad ones were Jordan Matthews. Um, oh, good word. But I also got, you know, I was into Mike Evans. I was into Devontae Adams, which was extremely painful until it wasn't. Uh, it was into Allen Robinson. So there were lots of good guys. But I didn't. I wasn't that into Odell Beckham. And when I looked back at that, I was like, man, Odo Beckham checked a lot of boxes for you. And you and you just like went away from him because you like some of these other guys a little bit better. So the, you know, like a T Higgins type could be like, you know, I, I'm, I'm rambling. But if I had not been in the 2014 class and passed on Odo Beckham at points where he was cheaper, then I bet I wouldn't have jumped on the chance to get cheap T Higgins and cheap Denzel Mims mm-hmm. and, and, you know, cheap chase Claypool and stuff like that, where the opportunity arose. So Jordan Matthews, JJ Ortega, Whiteside, Jalen Rager. Is Rager going to break the trend? Those guys for us, Pat. I think he is. I was looking today at um, Ben Gretsch came up with this weighted targets per route run stat. That's just target per route run, but with air yards factored in. And it's so it's basically like yards per route run, the PFF stat, but um, it has replaced the yards per target component with uh, with air yards. So basically, you can see like who's getting the volume, and then if you look at yards per target, it, it can help identify guys who are just underperforming the volume that they're getting. And I like to look at these rookie wide receivers and see like, man, did you immediately come in and have this big role? And if you have like a yards per route run over two as a rookie, that's often extremely bullish. Um, but even guys who are kind of in the 1.5 to two range often go on to have a ton of success. Like DK Metcalf would be an example of a guy who's in that range last year. And by weighted target per route run, that's where uh, Jalen Rager falls. He's kind of in that okay, you know, to good range, not great range in terms of the volume he's getting, but his yards per target sucks. And so I guess the question ultimately will be is like, is he just a bad player who that bad, that yards per target is going to stick with him? Or 
is Carson Wentz a disaster and the fact that he is a rookie has earned a pretty impressive role. Will that ultimately lead to more success down the line if he can get a better connection with Wentz or if Wentz ends up getting replaced by Jalen Hurts? So what vintage would you call the 2014? <laughs> <laughs> Drew Dinkmeyer has a uh, idea, Pat, for referring to rookie drafts uh, as like we, like we do with wine. So, Well, I actually under, misunderstood the joke thing because I thought the joke was that uh, or the suggestion was that we talk about our startup teams as if like I have a 2017 Mahomes. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. You are right. That is what he meant. I was thinking of the rookie drafts as like, but yeah, you're correct. Yeah. So what year was your startup draft? Yeah. 2020 yeah. Jackson versus 20. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, if you have a 2020 Jackson. That's uh that's not a vintage bottle right now. 2020 Lamar Jackson is not selling <laughs> very, very well. Um, but that actually brings me to a, to a point I wanted to make about uh, startups, which is that I think one way to get more diversification in Dynasty is to do a startup because the trade market can sometimes get a little bit nutty and maybe not even like, like okay, so Antonio Gibson would be an example where Antonio Gibson is essentially not available for trade, you know, like because he's just skyrocketing in value and his owner knows that and no one wants to be the guy that like sold medium on this asset that ends up being extremely valuable. So there can be these times, Justin Jefferson would be an example of a player like this too, where like, you're not getting Justin Jefferson right now. No one's selling him. And that's probably going to be the case this off season. Maybe there'll be some guys who have a ton of Justin Jefferson or whatever, and they want to unload some of that. But for the most part, player trade values can get a little locked up where they're not even really available. And you almost have to pay a tax to even begin negotiations. Like I'm going to overpay. And so that can be a tough way to get diversification. Like if you do not have exposure to Justin Jefferson, getting it through the trade market this offseason is probably going to be difficult. However, in startups, doesn't always seem to be the case that, you know, Justin Jefferson gets drafted at the level that, you know, his owner would want for him in trade. So you see this with like AJ Brown, these types of dudes who just vault up dynasty rankings. You can still get them in, in start. You still get, they're expensive. You know, they're definitely expensive, but they aren't necessarily going at like their peak value to where all of the edge has been sucked out. So I think doing startups can be a good way to get exposure to the breakout players that you may have missed this year, or just to any other players that you think are a little bit hard to get in trade, but that you want to have, more in your dynasty portfolio yeah that's a really good point i hadn't really considered it like that so i'll keep that in mind if we do another auction startup this this next off season pat i'll 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 bid you up on some of those guys that maybe (laughs) you're light on yeah if you can bid me up i I don't think i'll punt that until uh eternity i'll probably play that one a little bit more competitive uh this i'm in the in the auction that we did i'm currently panicking because I have Isaiah Coulter, and he may burn the ten point <laughs> tank lead that I have on Davis Maddock, who luckily <laughs> Davis Maddock, who like basically doesn't have a second quarterback in the Superflex league, but just got burned because Jacoby Brissett's rushing for <laughs> touchdowns. Dude, he's so mad. <laughs> so yeah, if you we've talked about this league before, but Davis and I are both trying to out tank each other for the one hundred and one in that in that league, and we both have a ton of 
rookie picks over the next two years. So we we just completely tanked and, and punted. But yeah, I think I'll probably go with a different strategy now that I'm a little more familiar with the format. Um, the uh, let's see, there was one other thing I wanted to talk about. Um, well, getting getting exposure to guys now that have fallen in value, I think, is pretty interesting in Dynasty, where, you know, even if you, and I, this is something, like I said, I did with Mims, where I was like, well, I don't love Mims, but he hasn't really played, he's available, and so he's cheaper than he used to be, I'll just take a stab, and I think that that makes sense, you know, I probably would like not do it with Van Jefferson, but, you know, (laughs) I mean, he's, he was so cheap to begin with that, you know, you, you can probably just send anything for him, but, getting exposure to some of the guys that have fallen on their face a little bit. Like I would say an AJ Dillon would be someone that if you can just get like absurdly cheap, that wouldn't be the worst thing with Jamal Williams and Aaron Jones free agents. Um, Guys like if you were not hyped on LaVisca Chenault, like I was, you know, I think he's someone that you can start shopping around for now. Jalen Rager, if, if you weren't hyped on him, like I was, could be someone to shop around for now. So there's, there's guys that, um, where their value has fallen. And if you just zoom out and think about, you know, the breakouts that we see from second year players, it's too early to give up on them. It's too early to even really apply a massive discount to them. So if you're starting to see big discounts applied to some of these guys, uh, I would, uh, I would try to get more diversification, especially if they're guys that you don't already have exposure to. Like I'm probably not going to go shop for LaVisca Chenault in the leagues where Sean Siegel drafted him. Um, you know, because that's basically the only leagues where I don't have him. <laughs> because you know, I already have so much exposure; I don't necessarily need it. But if you if you want to get some exposure to some of those guys, uh, I think this can be a good time to do it. All right, but yeah, so we'll we'll leave it there, and uh, you can check us out on Establish or on all of our work there. My dynasty rankings have just been updated, so you can check that out. Uh, I called Antonio Gibson's value a little nutty. You may think I'm a little nutty <laughs> because I I'm kind of hoping to drive that value with my ranking there um and yeah check check out that check out all, all of mike's work on the site you can follow me on twitter at pack rain follow mike on twitter at two hats one mike and we will see you next week